chapter 5. We finally made it to the last chapter of 1 John. While you're turning there, I want to commend you as a church family for enduring sound doctrine. Uh, We are now in our 11th year, and that's been uh, now about 10 years and a few months for those who have been with us that entire time of enduring basically expositional preaching and sound doctrine. And I just want to say, well done, and let's continue on in doing that. Um, And it'll be more and more difficult for generations that follow us to endure sound doctrine because we live in a world of emojis and sound bites and TikToks. And so 35 to 40 minutes of a monologue, that's what preaching is. People don't get to raise their hand and ask a question. God has designed it to be a monologue so that truth is proclaimed. And that takes focus and energy. And most of you do this well. Some of you could grow just a little bit. Uh, We'll grow together. And uh, keep your heart and mind engaged. Ask questions in your head about the text. I give you permission to double guess what I say. Critically think through, is that statement true? Is that a right application that springs out of the text? Take notes. Mark your Bible. That's not irreverent. Circle words and connections. Sit closer to the front. Do you know that actually helps? Right? I see all these choice seats going unused up front here. Um, I am called to preach the Word of God. Not to entertain or be popular, not even to be close friends with everybody in the assembly. That's not my calling. It's not even possible. But I'm called to preach. Paul exhorted young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1-3. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So I say again, Highlands, well done in enduring sound doctrine, and let's continue to grow in that together. First John, chapter 5. We're only going to go through the first four verses. I want to start with a simple question, but it's not so simple. Do you know the gospel? If I were to come to you and hand you that microphone that has already been used a few times and I had you stand up and I handed you the microphone and asked you, please tell everyone gathered and streaming online what the gospel is. Well, let's try that. No, I won't do that. What would you what would you say? Would it be an outline of truth statements? Or a couple of your favorite doctrinal talking points. Or an outline through Romans. Or perhaps a quick statement about who Jesus is. And then a list of grievances about Christianity and how the church really fails to reflect him well. Which is often true. But that's not the gospel. Or would it be a compelling glimpse of a loving God who by his grace saved you in Christ and has changed your heart by the gift and transforming power of the Holy Spirit And it cost you nothing. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to go to church for it. 
You don't have to give money for it. It costs you nothing. Is that what we would hear, this overwhelming glimpse of the incredible kindness of God? About eight years ago, I had announced to Highlands that I would be preaching expositionally through the Gospel of Mark. To this day, probably one of my favorite sermon series I've ever studied and preached. And after I'd announced that at the end of the service, an older, long-standing member approached me, uh, a member who's to, to safeguard this, who is no longer here, approached me after the announcements and said, we already know the gospel. Inferring, preach to us something we don't know. And my immediate thought was, I'm actually not really certain you do know the gospel. Do we know the gospel? Because in our text this morning, John puts forth a picture of born-again believers who are so completely cleansed and healed inwardly that reconciliation with one another is the natural outflow of loving God. See, that too is the gospel. John has repeatedly drawn attention to three tests to assure to us that we are God's children by a new birth. So we could call them birthmarks. A mark that indicates we are true children of God. They are, and I think if I gave you the microphone, most of you could repeat these. There is the mark of right belief, right? That's the doctrinal mark. Or right love, which is the relational mark. Or right behavior, which is the ethical mark. It's a composite rather than just three parts. So it's kind of like an exam that has three parts to this test. The reason we have to say that is because somebody can make a right confession and yet be unsaved. So now I've asked you to think critically through statements that I make and evaluate it and double guess it. Do you believe that? And do I have scriptural proof to say that? That you can have right doctrine and be completely lost. James, the half-brother of our Lord, said this. You say you have faith. For you believe that there is one God good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. Right doctrine and right emotion. And yet the demons are not saved. Right. You can be spot on with the doctrines of and and take some of my favorite doctrines or the deeper doctrines. God's sovereignty, election, a hundred other truths, and yet not be a true child of God. Matthew 23, Jesus said that the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They interpreted the law accurately. They were doctrinally exact, but they missed the point. A matter of fact, Jesus then asks the Jews in John 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And as Bible believing Christians, we're like, well, sure, yes. But Jesus doesn't agree with that. He says, it is they, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The gospel is always centered on a person. You can have right doctrine, yet be unsaved. So, if this is a three-part exam and you ace the doctrinal part of the exam, you can still end up coming out with a 33.3333%, which is a letter grade of... F. Do you know you can have love but be wrong in your confession and still fail the test? You can be the most loving, sacrificial, loving person that the world has ever known and still be lost. 
See, loving others without reference to God leads to a distorted understanding of love, which means I could spend my life feeding the poor and protecting the weak and consistently giving of myself, not unlike Hindus or some Buddhists or Muslims or atheists, and yet reject God's Son, which means I just failed that test. Love alone does not stand as the final test. And third, we can have the most religious conduct, but still be lost. Our morality, our ethics could be top tier, outdoing everybody else. But I need only point you back to the Pharisees. Or Paul's own testimony, which I love. He says this. He actually challenges our own external list. He's, he's going to sort of one-up us in our religiosity. In Philippians 3, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what Paul then does is he unpacks racial and religious checklists. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But he was still lost. And then he says in verse 7 of Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You may pass the religious test and still fail the composite exam. The purpose of John's letter, again, is found in 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this has sort of been the theme we've been working with. Marks of authentic Christian faith and experience. Orthodoxy, which is right teaching, and orthopraxy, which is right living. Now, this full section that we're kind of parachuting down into runs from chapter 4, verse 20, that Pastor Sean preached to us, and it runs all the way to our text this morning. And it proposes a very difficult question. It actually asks us the question, what triggers religious conduct? What is a proper motivation for true religious conduct? What message or what thought process or what experience will trigger activity within us that is unmistakably Christ-like and loving and gracious and forgiving? In this entire section, the word law is not highlighted or not even obedience, though he talks about it, or fear, though fear is addressed. It's actually the word love. The word love appears more than 30 times from 1 John 4, verse 7 to 5, verse 3. And it occurs five times in our text this morning. So here's the exam. Does your life reflect the implications of the new birth? And here's what John's going to do as we go through the text. Do you love the father and his family? Do you obey his commands, which is primarily love one another? And are you overcoming the world? Do you love the father and his family? Look at verse one, first John, chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. That's a doctrinal confession has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Look at the very first word. Because I I, I don't want the thief of wrong belief to steal the good news out of the Gospel. 
The first word is everyone. That means no one is excluded from the offer of God's salvation and forgiveness. Second, it means there must be a personal acceptance of the statement that follows. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the promised deliverer, that he's the only one that can save. I mean, the passage that Lloyd read for us this morning is alarming. It's disturbing. And I appreciated Tristan's comment right afterwards in pointing us to the consistency and love of God. God reset the world. He basically cleansed the world with water and he saved one righteous man, Noah. But Noah is not your savior. Because it was through him that sin then occupied the entire globe again. The exceeding sinfulness of sin comes out of that account. And all these stories are pointing us to one person, the promised Messiah. And if you reject the fact that Jesus is that Messiah, that Christ, you are not born again. That's what verse 1 of chapter 5 says. Without that confession, there is no new birth. John alludes to the new birth. Look at verse 1 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He actually refers to the new birth three times in this passage. Twice in verse 1 and once in verse 4. Where do you think John got that idea to call salvation, conversion, new birth? Well, he's the one that recorded in his account of the gospel in John chapter three, Jesus confrontation with what man, what what religious leader of the Jews did he confront? Okay, Nicodemus in John chapter three, verses two to three, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, educated, wealthy, powerful, influential, religious, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's all he says. And listen to Jesus' response. He actually provides a question where there was really no answer, or he provides an answer where there was really no question. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 7, Jesus said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he gives the illustration of the wind blowing. and You don't see it. You don't know where it came from. But you do see the effects of it, even though you can't see it. The same is true with new birth. And so John is going to say legitimate, genuine new birth is going to be followed by three implications. Okay, verse 1 makes it clear that a confession That Jesus is the Messiah is foundational. But look at what else he says, because he's going to tether that that confession to an implication. And that implication is going to make sure that your confession that Jesus is the Messiah doesn't spring from just mouth service and a hollow heart. So basically, this is what John's going to do. If A is authentic, then B will also be present. Okay, if A, a true confession that Jesus is the Messiah is truly true, then B, the implication will also be true. So what is the implication? Look at verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. A. B, and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you love other Christians? 
not a sampling of other Christians who happen to be most like you and agree with you. Do you love other Christ followers? If you do not love other Jesus followers, doesn't mean you're never frustrated with them. And it doesn't mean you don't have the frustration of putting up with them in love or having to be forbearing with them. But if you don't have a true godlike love for other Jesus followers, you have no assurance that that confession springs from your heart. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Many will come to me and say what? Lord, Lord. Okay, let me ask you, is Jesus Lord? Yes, that's a right confession. Haven't we done this and this and this and this and this? Yes, but the actual implication of a right confession was missing. Therefore, Jesus has to say what? I never, I never knew you. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. See, our lack of love for the entire body of Christ evidences something deeper and something quite concerning, and that is that we may have never experienced the love of God as the Father has intended us to, and it has never brought us into a new birth as his child. Maybe that's difficult to hear. Um, let, me, let me then quote Jesus. He said in Luke 6.32, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Maybe you've said this, I've said this, uh, there are days, there are weeks, maybe months, where I really love Jesus. I just don't love his church. You ever thought that? Have you ever thought that maybe it's so difficult to love the church because that's the exact kind of love that proves whether your love is imitating God's or the world's? Because if you simply love other people that like you, what are you doing that lost people aren't doing. To make it piercingly specific, do you love those at Highlands who have failed to love and care for you properly? Do you love people here who have not met your expectations? This is the test John really puts forward. And maybe underneath that, then, we have to ask, have you experienced the love of God? See, we already worked through chapter 4, where Sean handled this truth. And if you've not heard the sermon, go back and listen to it. Um, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we would do well to, to answer this question. Is my life shaped more by the threat of God's law and the fear of his wrath or by the comfort of God's love and the wonder of his grace? Because both of those are shaping influences. Is my mindset more about the anger and disappointment of God and his resulting punishment or about his tender kindness and unconditional love? See, at some point, the love of God has to transform from basic fear, which Proverbs 9.10 says is the beginning, but it has to transform into an overwhelming, unconditional, undeserved love of God for you individually. And when that affects your heart, guess what you will then show? You will love the Father because He loved you that way, but you will also love who? Other Christians. 
See, if Christianity was primarily about obeying all the rules, no one here would call that good news. Because we would fail consistently. Our motivation to please God springs from this fresh truth that He already favors us. He's already accepted us. He already loves us. Jesus said this in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Even as Rob turned our attention to this morning, um, it's, his burden is light. Why? Because the motivation springs from love, not from fear of judgment. Everyone who truly loves the Father loves his children as well, which leads us to the next point. Look at verse 2. Are we obeying his commands? By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Doesn't it sound like John's got that truth backwards? Look at verse 2 again. You would think it would say this, um, by this we know that we love God if we love His children by keeping His commandments. It doesn't do that. It seems inverted. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. But I don't think John does have it backwards. I think, I think what he is doing is he's putting this very difficult proof forward first. By this you know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. See, John's teaching is grounded uh, in that section in Matthew where a, a lawyer comes and he tries to trip up Jesus because this man had seen that Jesus had defeated the other arguments of the scribes and those who had approached him. So this lawyer goes up and tries to entrap him. And he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, if that standed in isolation by itself, it would be easy to confess that, right? You could make that confession publicly. You could do stuff to sort of prove that. But then Jesus adds this, the difficult proof. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And all of a sudden, the proof of that confession becomes very conspicuous because it is obvious when someone is bitter and slanderous and hateful. So then it all of a sudden becomes obvious whether we truly do love God. Remember what John had already said twice in 1 John 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And he says in 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So go back up to that text. It's not really backwards. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. See, our love for the Father, because He first loved us, motivates us to love whom God loves and it motivates us to love them as God loves. How does He love you? No one in this room knows you the way God knows you. No one knows your personality the way God does. Nobody knows what humors you the way God does. Nobody knows those inner thoughts that you've never shared with anyone. And there's a lot of great and probably incredible thoughts in there. But 
But on the other side of the coin, he also knows how dirty you are. How your motivations are corrupt. How I have sinned in this past week. I haven't told you that. I don't get up here and just go through a litany of my personal sins. God knows. And yet he's still what? He loves you with an everlasting love. He loves me. He doesn't just, as the celestial policeman, come in and beat me over the head. No, he shows incredible patience and long-suffering and forbearing and grace. And if I'm loving you out of that motivation, how God has loved me, I will love whom God loves and I will love as God loves. See, John's exhortation to love is always timely because the church is constantly beset with undisclosed tensions, rivalries, interpersonal conflicts, hurts, and misunderstandings. And so he's putting this test forward sort of as an accountability marker to continue to live in unity. And the church is no exception of the human community, but it should be an exception in how quickly and humbly we reconcile with each other. Hurting, it's often said, hurting people hurt people. And in the church, when one member suffers, the entire body suffers with it. Okay, if you want to prove that statement, slam your finger in a door and tell me how the rest of your body feels. Right? It all gives attention to what? That one body part. John is saying that in the new birth, you received a new nature. Because now that God loves you that way, you should love others in the same way and you will delight in obeying him. Gary M. Burge in his commentary explained this. He's talking about um, his commands not being burdensome, not being grievous. If you are a child of God, his power and dominion provide comfort, not fear. And he's connecting this to verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. By the way, what, what are his commandments? Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. See, Jesus even said, this is the proof to your truly loving God. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Gary M. Burge said this, the sheiks, sultans, and kings of Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf countries often enjoy absolute power. With a word, they can bring economic ruin to anyone. Some can take life simply with a command. Limitless power within their domain is characteristic of their lives. But those living in close proximity to such a sultan know that he can either be their greatest benefactor or their greatest enemy. And to be a child, a prince or princess living in that palace puts one in a breathtaking place of privilege. You are safe alongside the storm, protected next to the lion. The hand that has slain many blesses you when we, when we reclaim the awesomeness and power of God, giving him utmost respect, then his loving kindness takes on new potency. Because of a love and a relationship, what he says, his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because you delight to please him. Final question. Are you overcoming the world? Look at verse 4. Last verse. For everyone who has been born of God, it's the third time he uses the idea of new birth, 
overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The third implication of genuine new birth is that you overcome the world. That's what he's talking about. That the unredeemed world under this, the control of Satan. He's already he's actually following back on what he said in 1 John 2, verse 15, where he said this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So two, two choices stand before everyone here this morning. Either we love the Father or we love the world. And if we love the Father, we will also love whom? One another. But if you do not love one another, it is evident that you love what? The principles of the world. John said, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, by placing, and he says this, this is our victory that overcomes the world, our faith. By placing faith in Christ, we are no longer consumed by what we don't have, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or what we do have, the pride of life. That curse has been broken, and now we are free to love one another. John Piper said this, faith sees that Jesus is better. That is why faith conquers the world. The world held us in bondage by the power of its desires, but now our eyes have been opened by the new birth to see the superior desirability of Jesus. Jesus is better than the desires of the flesh and better than the desires of the eyes and better than the riches that strangle us with greed and pride. Therefore, John says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How did we do on the composite three-part exam? There are several DNA tests available now that can reveal a lot about you. One of those is called 23andMe. One of our family members recently did this. It's a home-based saliva collection kit that is sent to a lab, and there's different price ranges for what you can get back. I find it fascinating. Uh, but the cheapest version returns the results of your ancestry and traits. Our family enjoyed seeing the results of the ancestry. On the top of the report, it says your dad is obviously Zeus. <laughs> okay, no, it, didn't, it did not say that. It, it did say we are 99.8% European. No shocker. 94.4% Northwestern European. Incredibly attractive, fun. No, it didn't say that. Um, anyway, we had, we had fun with that. DNA test because it kicks back and you look at it and you go well, all these different percentages and you're like, oh, yeah, primarily Germany and France. And you know, this all makes sense because we've heard about it through our parents and our grandparents and the D DNA test kicks back. Do you know what John has just done for you in four verses? He's provided you a spiritual DNA test. You can get the report. Do you say the right thing about Jesus and do you love the father and his family? Thirty three point three 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 percent. Do you consistently, not without fail, but consistently obey his commands? And his command is to love one another. 33.3333%. Are you overcoming the world by the power of Christ? Not without fail, but are you fighting? Are you resisting? Are you, are you finding some measure of victory in Christ? 33.333%. 
I think all of those should be at 100%. Does that give you assurance this morning? Because John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here it is, last statement. That you may know that you have eternal life. I'm going to invite our music team forward. You can know that you have eternal life. I would encourage you to do what we did at the beginning of this series, and that is read the five chapters of 1 John in a single setting with a pencil or a pen. And every time there's a test, just circle it. Evaluate yourself. I'm not the one to stand in judgment upon you. I can proclaim truth. But you need to examine yourselves. Isn't that what Paul told the Corinthians before they observed the Lord's Supper? Examine yourselves. See whether you are in the faith or not. Read 1 John. I would even encourage you to go back and read the entire Gospel of John in a single setting and be encouraged and refreshed by the words of Jesus. Let's pray.